Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the last of our conversation about Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. So I am sure we are in for another vibrant conversation as we have been the last few weeks. And I, I just want to extend many thanks to Ralph and to Sarah for facilitating. I know it's not always the easiest thing to do, but you have done it with incredible grace. So well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And then next week, we are going to start a series that has us watching and discussing the series The Chosen. Have anybody heard of The Chosen? Okay. So it is a multi-season series about the, the life of Jesus and his disciples and of what they experienced, how they were called, and what it was like to follow Jesus. Um, and... When you watch it, I think you might see some interesting parallels to your own faith journey. So if you're so inclined, I certainly invite you to come at least check out one episode. And then if it's not for you, you know it's not for you. And if you like it, hey, then you can come back for the remaining uh, season one episodes. All right? And then the plan for that is that we'll get our food, come back in and start watching it as we eat. That gives us time to talk about it then after the fact. So. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Ralph and Sarah for our last session. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jan. It's great to be back. It's great to see everybody here again. Beth, I don't think we've met you. I'm Ralph. This is, this is Sarah. I'm Sarah. <laughs> so. Did you get a hard copy of my notes? I did, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what we'll probably do is uh, spend at least half the time going through the different chapters. But then probably <coughs> at the end we'll spend whatever time is left. Well, certainly we need so we should do some of it though. Just sort of in general, what did you what did you learn from the book? How did it impact your view of 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 God, of grace, of forgiveness, of yourself, of uh, yeah, all all, the, all those good things. So, <clears throat> did you have an opening prayer, or is it, am I doing the opening prayer? You're the opening prayer guy. All right, all right. <clears throat> Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we uh, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you love us tremendously. That you sent uh, your Son to die for our sins. That you uh, you show your grace every day to us in our individual lives, in the world, um, in each other, and um, that you continue to do this every day, and that you love us no matter, honestly, what we do. So we pray you bless our time tonight and uh, guide our conversation, and pray that it be glorifying to you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, first chapter was about Big Harold. What did you think about Big Harold? Did you know anybody like Big Harold? Without naming names, of course. He was a piece of work. He was a piece of work. And I'm asking this question because I don't have an answer to it. Can anyone explain to me or offer an explanation about 
his absolute rigidity with respect to his religious legalism, followed by the hypocrisy of him being or a purveyor of pornography. I mean, how, how did he deal with those two things? It, if, if this had not been told to me as a true story, I would not have believed it could have been true. You couldn't have someone with that kind of dichotomy. And apparently remained so for the rest of his life. We see that quite often if you even think about megachurch pastors that have their, un, their dirty laundry air. Um, yep. I'm thinking of, I can picture him, but I can't think of his name right now. It'll come to me in a minute. Jim Baker Jim, was one Jim of Baker, them. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. I have sinned. I'm picturing him with the tears rolling down his eyes. And, and, the, guy, and the local <coughs> guy, too. Uh, Johnson or something like uh, that? There was a local guy. You're right. You're right. But I you just look at clergy to see that. I think no. a lot of times you just look at people and say, at least I do, when people are so adamant and brittle, I kind of want to say, I think thou dost protest too much. Mm -hmm. Yep. And when I, when I see that, I begin to really wonder what is going on inside. Wonder what's a happening. Obviously a struggle. A real struggle, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they, they, they don't seem to have any sense of, uh, well, uh, sensitivity toward toward, well, loving other people, really. That's what it comes down to. It's all about the law, and we know by the law, no one can please God. And uh, then you get wrapped up in legalism, think, well, if I just, I mean, the Pharisees, right? If I just abide by the law, um, but then Christ said, <coughs> you, you ignore the big stuff, like justice, and pay attention to the amount of call and, or deal and whatever, that you give, it's like you're, you're totally focused in the wrong place. So, I mean, honestly, the poor guy probably never had anybody give him an example of somebody, be a role model to him of somebody who actually saw things differently. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of psychological stuff that's going on there and lots of roots in one's history that's going on in that kind of situation. Um, it's like <clears throat> if if you don't own your own shadow side, it will consume you. And your shadow side is that part of you that you just wouldn't be, whatever that is. Uh, and it's you know spiritually and psychologically critical that you come to a point where you understand that, are aware of it, and can own it, so that it can be integrated and and healed. And when you bury it and won't look at it and won't own it, then it will own you. And that certainly owned him. So. And another one that's coming to mind is Franklin Graham. Didn't Franklin Graham have an issue also? The, uh, the son of Billy. <coughs> I don't know. I'm seeing some, I can't remember what they, I can't remember what the issue was. It's 
Yeah, I think it was. Well, I think he was discovered having an affair by his parents, or not an affair, but a out of wedlock relationship by his parents at one point. Hmm. Maybe and that was that it. was quite distressing. But it might be a more likely a developmental issue. The uh, uh, there is a certain point in our life where everything looks black and white. And we all, most of us, develop beyond that based on interaction with other people, loving experiences, that sort of thing. But some people get frozen in that black and white world. And so the rigidity might come out of that kind of experience. You know, it's his problem. We can't explain it. He needs to get it to the bottom of it if he wants to. Uh, but separating you know, the two things you raised, the, the two things, it rigidity, it kind of depends on what his primary uh, religious concern is, and I would say it's probably purity. If he's mm -hmm. rigid, purity, it, being pure, is what he wants, and, and what Jesus is offering, he was dealing with a very rigid Judaism at the time, of first century Judaism, was, was really frozen in its, uh, and you know, Jesus sort of blew the doors off that. And basically, you know, tried to introduce compassion and empathy to the, to the process. Well, <clears throat> from what I understand, um, the, the more spiritual a person, uh, the more sensitive they are to the feelings and thoughts they may experience that they don't like. And Jesus said, if you've thought it, you've done it. And so the more spiritual you are, to have a thought or a feeling is something that's really difficult to handle. And when Father John talks about owning something, I'm, <clears throat> I like that word too, but I'm curious what you mean by owning because the experience thoughts and the feelings, is that the knowing them, to getting rid of them, to doing something about them, to denying them, to telling everybody what kind of a, a dark side you might have, you know, because we all have dark nights of the soul. Well, I don't think owning it means that you broadcast it. I think owning it simply means that you acknowledge that it's there inside of you. You know, I think the power of that particular story is that it's an illustration of something that's true for all of us. Yep. And, and of course, that one may be a little more extreme, but, you know, I was always taught that sin is uh, kind of like atomic bombs and hand grenades. It's just destroying. Just destroys you, no matter Absolutely. how big or small yep. it may be. Yep. It destroys you, destroys mm -hmm. your relationship. It destroys your relationship with God, with yourself, and with others. <clears throat> yep. And so, owning your own brokenness, ex acknowledging it, uh, not being unconscious to it, is very important in terms of one's healing and and their ability to come before God and say, yes, I've, 
I have this issue. To, Please heal me. To, yeah, well, to your first point, I heard a pastor say once, um, sin will take you farther than you want to go and cost you more than you want to pay. <laughs> I, like I thought that. that was very good. Um, but to your second point, yeah, there's a, there's a quote in here. There's lots of great quotes in here, of course. But um, on page 272, it says, I escaped the force of spiritual gravity when I began to see myself as a sinner who cannot please God by any method of self-improvement or self-enlargement. Only then can I turn to God for outside help, for grace. And then I escaped the force of gravity again when I recognized my neighbors also as sinners loved by God. I, I want to um, move on, if we might, to, that, to the next chapter, um, chapter 17, The Mixed Aroma where he is a religious conservative kind of takes on, I think, the religious conservatives. Uh, one of the quotes that he cites, and I don't, think, I don't think he is the source of it, but has it in the book, is activism of religious conservatives pose a far greater threat to, threat to democracy than communism. That was an editorial in the New York Times. That, that was written in, I, I underlined that as well. Yeah, yeah I, have, I wrote it down, and then I forgot to put who. It, it so was an editorial in the New York Times. So what do you think about that? I mean, it might be a little hyperbole on the part of the um, New York Times reporter, but do we need to be concerned about religious conservatives posing a threat, a threat to democracy? Well, um, I... I might not have agreed with it when it was written in the New York Times back in the 90s, but right now I'm feeling like that may very well be the case. That was kind of prophetic. I could be wrong, but it seems like somewhere in my past I remember reading that a church could lose its nonprofit status if it took a political <coughs> stance. And you know, part of our country's foundation is the separation of church and state, and I just don't see that they mix very well together. They do need to stay. There are some churches, the Episcopalian Church being one of them, um, who uh, I think abides by that. I think most mainstream Protestants abide by that. But there are other churches that absolutely push the limits. The Catholic Church, I think, pushes the limits on that. And I think some of the more fundamentalist evangelical churches push the limit on that. But, even, but there's nobody there to enforce it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. But even the, but, uh, and I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm a little uncomfortable with the fact that the Methodist Church and the Episcopal Church both have offices in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> with the specific purpose of um, influencing government. Yeah government decisions. I, I don't know if they're, do they qualify as lobbyists? I don't know, but I, but I guess they are. I imagine. I don't know the answer to that question, and I didn't even think about that aspect of it. My understanding, and I, there's a name for that rule, and I can't remember what the name of that rule is, that politics could not be preached from the pulpit. You can't have a clergy person say, you need to vote for, or if you're really a Christian, you will vote for, or the Catholic Church only. Right, and, I, and I'm not talking about the law. That's mm -hmm. the law of the land. But I'm just talking about my discomfort at having the church 
in Washington trying to influence legislation and stuff. I just, I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's uncomfortable well, for me. I'm, I won't say I'm against it, but it, well, it leaves me uneasy. That's just because you lived through the 1950s. The 1950s. Only four years of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Let's be clear. Right. Well, you didn't live through the 1950s. Those of us who lived through the 1950s, though, the separation of was pretty, pretty. There, you know, lobbying would have been, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s and on that lobbying became sort of okay. You know, but the the ideology, of, especially the post-war ideology, was that separation was, and you know, most people thought of their religion as their own, as individuals, and you know, politics had nothing to do with it. You know, but there's been the the idea that uh, it is the state that may not impose itself into the church. It's never been a problem for the church to try and declare its faith to the state. That, I mean, when the church imposes it, then the church is showing a preference for one entity over another, then we have a problem. But it's never a problem with taking your faith to work. Now, I do have some problems with what you're talking about. And the Episcopal Church, at one point in time, need to have a lobbying arm because everyone the presiding, there was the presiding bishop was the primary chaplain to the president of the United States <coughs> until after Ed Brown, I think it was, went into George Herbert Walker Bush and chastised him for a position he took on a particular matter and George Herbert Walker Bush, who is an Episcopalian, never called upon him again. He could have remained the chaplain and listened to him and prayed with him and give him counsel. And it's a good chance that the presiding bishop could still be chaplain to the President of the United States. But once, once you overstep your role, you, you know, he got shut down. And then, if we're going to have any influence, we better get a lobbying entity. To, Go ahead, Don. I'm well, thinking. Maybe to put things in a perspective is that, from my understanding, my awareness in the, the history of men and, and women, um, there has been no separation. To, religious, spiritual perceptions and the community. It's as old as the hills. What's new is the concept of democracy where all different people to live together in harmony, that is still an experiment from what I can tell. And right now, I'm not sure it's succeeding. That doesn't seem to be working too well right now. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the questions I had written down was what role should the church take in politics, if any role at all? And we may have differing views on that. Susan? I, I think it should take a moral role. I think it should set an example 
uh, and it, when it talks to its people, the church's people, uh, it should set the kind of example that, that perhaps then the greater society might hear and think, oh, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good way to live. Why don't we, why don't we all live like that? Mm-hmm. You know? It, yeah. Well, preach to your own people and let your people be examples in the world. And, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus did, isn't it? Well, I like your phrase about being a moral example, but I don't think we're a moral society. We're an individualistic society. I mean, morality is about how do you live together in community? How do you think in terms of the common good? And our political system is only about me or my tribe. Now. Right, now. And so I think the church really needs to spend some time teaching its people about morality and what morality is, rather than just simply don't have sex outside of marriage, don't drink until you get drunk, don't do this, don't do that. That's not morality. Morality is how do we respect one another and live together with one another and, and learn from one another and help one another and that's morality. And that's, you know, in our culture it's really, if I do this, will this be good for me? I, go ahead, Ralph. <clears throat> well, I honestly forgot what I was going to say. But I, I really liked, and I think you addressed it later, but where he, he talks about your, your quote about um, the national the president of the National Association of Evangelicals at some point said one of his top ten concerns was repeal of the capital gains tax. Um, I, I, to, I, I completely agree that that was like you're missing the point of what your role is. But I say a bit I say but 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 I do think it needs to be, we're called to be salt and light in the community, and if the community is going to hell in a handbasket. We can't be just right along, you know. And you guys have heard of George Barna. I know you preachers have about George Barna, and he's done studies between evangelicals, Episcopals, whatever that group versus versus the non-churched, and there's virtually no difference. And that's the problem: is that the church doesn't teach its own how to live lives that, frankly, are glorifying to God, and um, and so. It certainly would, it teaches the obvious stuff, don't go through a bomb in the street, I think. At least most churches do. But it, to me, it doesn't teach the other stuff about, um, I love this quote from the, from, from the Gospels about, you know, ba basically, if you say rocket to your brother, which is basically like, damn you or whatever, you basically hate your brother or murdered your brother. So basically, murder and condemning somebody is the same thing as, as, as hatred. It's all based on hatred, right? And so what I don't say the church would do enough is to teach everybody, you know, all those different forms of hate, you know, saying you, you, you're an idiot or saying I hate that person or whatever it might be. Those are all forms of hate. And you take that to the extremes and you get Rwanda where you have the, the, Hootsies, the Tutsis and the Hutus who hated each other simply because they weren't each other. And that's where, that's where it goes. And so the church needs to start way before that saying, what are you doing hating your brother? Or calling, you know, calling a person a black person, you know, whatever. It's like it's completely wrong. 
don't do it. And the world may do it, but you're called to something higher. So that's my rant on that. If, if the church would teach that the Ten Commandments and obeying the Ten Commandments is, a, is not a ticket to heaven, but would teach that the Ten Commandments are directives or direction given to a people on how they can safely live together as a people. Right, for their own good. Yeah, and so it is a moral code. It's not a ticket to heaven if you obey it. So it's not about me doing what's right about according to those commandments so I get to go to heaven. It's about us doing it together so that we can live as the light to the nations. Yes, yes. Amen. I'll say amen. I don't know where I read this, and I, I thought I had written this quote down someplace, but I could not find it. I spent a significant amount of time this afternoon trying to find it. I read in a book, and it may have been a book by John Danforth, I'm not positive, um, that said, when a Christian casts his vote, he should be asking himself the question, does this advance the common good? even if it might hurt me or not be economically sound for me personally. Does this advance the common good? And sometimes it's going to advance that voter's good as well, but there will be times when it does not advance the voter's good, but advances that of all humankind. And that made a lot of sense to me, to use that as a benchmark. That's awesome. I'm putting myself in the shoes of some of the evangelicals especially. Uh, We live in apocalyptic times. They definitely believe we live in apocalyptic times. And from their perspective, my involvement with them, God uses ungodly people towards his end. So it doesn't matter that Donald Trump is ungodly and it's a con man and it's a crook, they think he's leading towards God's end, which from the evangelical perspective almost always ends up with Armageddon. And a lot of that is, um, it's fairly imminent. And they want it to come because that's gonna force Jesus to come back. The thought processes of these people uh, approach the, the dark side the real dark side, and that's what's scary to me. What's scary? I didn't get What's scary to you? The dark side of evangelicalism, yeah. which is apocalypse now. Well, from spending some time in the uh, evangelical church, I think they understand that we don't know when it's going to come. Christ said, even I don't know when, when the return of Christ is. And as far as looking forward to it, well, yeah, the return of Christ is a good thing. But it's just like, he, he they I think they've probably been thinking this for 900 years, or 1900 years. I mean, I don't know, I think Paul was ready for Christ to come back. So, 1900 years later, we're still looking for it, and God says we should look forward to that hope, but my experience is they don't say, gosh, I hope the world goes to hell, excuse me, that's the second time I use that word, I hope the world just, the world just falls apart, because I can't wait. It's like, no, that's just crazy. 
That's not loving your brother either. <clears throat> no, it's not. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never seen that. But, but those, those portions of, of the evangelical uh, uh, belief system are very strong in prophecy. And they believe in large part that the, the prophecy has to be fulfilled before. It's almost like a step-by-step -step thing. And <clears throat> the... The Temple Mount, where the temple was, that's now under Muslim control, has to be rebuilt. And so the idea of that happening, which would cause the war, that would end up being nuclear, because we are a nuclear society. And Russia is uh, the, the, the tribe of Moss that they interpret as Russia coming down. So the whole thing, not all evangelicals, but there's a significant portion in literature, the way they write and what they say, they're actually um, moving in that direction. And they believe that they, in fact, can bring Jesus back. Jesus has to come back if they do certain things, which if I may. answer these prophecies. Go ahead. So um, certainly there are portions of evangelical uh, believers who are would fall into that camp in that category. I think the larger um, concern that I have is the the way of thinking that's more um, cause effect thinking and only cause effect that you can see. Um, that there's this sort of that black and white thinking that you mentioned earlier, um, which is a is black and white thinking is a developmental stage, but it's also a sign of stress. When we go into stress, we go into black and white thinking. It's just our physiology. And so if you have people growing up in, um, without that, like slowing down, without knowing how to slow down, and they're thinking in this black and white thinking, whether they ascribe to apocalyptic prophecy and, oh, I have to do this to bring, the, bring about this change, or whether um, they believe that um, certain laws are bringing God's judgment on the land and so we need to overthrow that law and change the Supreme Court so that law is no longer in place. It's that direct black and white thinking of if this, then this, without seeing the community as a whole like ecosystem of people moving together. And so just to circle back to the, yeah. And I, I want to circle back to the Ten Commandments because um, I've been studying Hebrew for three years, and there are only two commandments in the Ten Commandments, um, and the rest of them are all descriptions. And it is all y'all are not a people who, all y'all are a people who do this, all y'all are people who treat each other this way. And they're more descriptions of this is who you are, rather than a don't do that, <laughs> stop that. <laughs> it's more you are a people who honor one another. You are a people who act in loving ways. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. Well, th 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 thank, thank you, Beth. I, I was going to see if Michelle wanted, had anything to say. We haven't heard from you yet, Michelle. And if you don't want to have anything to say, that's perfectly fine. But well, I even forgot to introduce you because I didn't see you over here. You're visiting, and I'm actually transitioning um, back to my friend's home. So thank you for your hospitality. <laughs> oh, you're fine. Yeah. I, yeah, you're totally fine. Well, I I uh, a little bit on that. I I did some word studies on commandment, and 
probably a better word choice would be enjoin rather than command. And to enjoin somebody is to um, call them. It doesn't have the kind of harsh uh, law mindset that we have when we use the word commandment. It's more like saying, folks, it would really be good if you would honor your father and mother. Commendments, commendments, not commandments. Commendments is, is, is <laughs> a, you know, it's just, if you have a loving relational God, or if you're a loving relational parent, there are very few commands you give your children. It's more like, stay close to me, we're walking across the street. Now that could be heard as a commandment. That is just, if you don't do it, I'm going to box you around the ears. Or it could be, if you don't do it, you might get hurt. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I yeah, think we have been so steeped over the, over the last two millennia of this omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who is just going to rain down wrath on us if we don't do exactly what he says. And I just don't think that's the biblical God. I mean, I think there are some people in the Bible who saw it that way, but I just don't think overall that's the biblical God, and I certainly don't think it's the New Testament expression of God. And that example you used of the parent saying, hold on to my hand, we're crossing the street, another way to say that is, I love you. And mm -hmm. so that could also be said of, of what we call the commandments. It's God's way of saying, I love you, I want things to work well for you. Uh, I want to go back to this idea of forcing God to act. I have a feeling if they bring on the apocalypse, which they very likely may, um, I could see God just folding his arms and saying, well, goodbye, humanity. Goodbye. That's, that works for me as the God of your ancestors. You know, I don't think, I don't think that would probably happen, but I don't think you can force God to do anything. I think it's in so many stories in the Bible where, and Jesus just says, you know, you can't tempt God. Exactly. You know, you just don't do that. That, that, that kind of, that's, uh, you know, that's the preamble to the Ten Commandments right there. And I, I just want to jump in again. I, I don't see anything from spending really all my life till I came to St. Andrews in the evangelical movement of some sort. Um, I don't, I've never met anybody that's trying to force God's hand to do anything or thinking, let's do something evil so that prophecy will come about. It's like, that's just crazy to me. I just, I don't know where that came from, but I, I, I've never seen it. And, and uh, I, I sort of want to squash it because I don't think it's true. So, I don't think it's true among the rank and file. Well, I don't think it's true among anybody. I think it's true among some people at the real fringes. Fringe. Well, maybe like, okay, like the there Tower are some guy, players right? that I think, you know, there are some players who, have, who are in the government or who are close to working in the government who do have that mindset. And it's pretty maybe. scary. Maybe. I, I, I've, never, Bush, I've never met one. Book, I've never heard people talk George, about the it George happening. W. Bush period, it was going on. Okay. Okay. All right. My concern uh, 
and he brings this up in the book, has the evangelical branch of Christianity traded grace for power? Starting, and, and I place this back when Ronald Reagan chose to have Jerry Falwell speak at his inauguration and gave that man legitimacy, who in my opinion should have none, um, and slowly over time they have built a grassroots system and they now look, at least in my opinion, and I'd love to hear if you disagree, that what they are now wanting is power, political power, to impose their brand of Christianity on all of us. And that scares me a lot. And they're succeeding. Frankie Schaefer, who is the son of Francis Schaefer, who was one of the princes of the evangelical movement. Now, I, I know him. I was, went to the Brie and studied under Francis Schaefer. And I knew Frankie at the time. Um, Frankie wrote, wrote a book on the subject. This is the kind of stuff that's been happening, and that's one of the reasons why he's left it, and he's calling it a, a lot of levels of it into question, because not unlike for, uh, Philip Yancey, I mean, he's calling it into question, and he's inside the house, and he means to be inside the house. I'm sure it's uncomfortable for him, but he's basically calling his very large tribe into question. Um, but I think there's a lot in what he's calling that it's good for us as Episcopalians to think about too. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're, I think, why we're doing this book. I, I'm going to play devil advocate again. And that is, isn't everybody in government seeking power? I mean, isn't every lobbyist? We're talking about religious leaders. Do, we, do, do the religious leaders isn't want power or do they want to spread Jesus? love. One of my favorite lines in here is, um, the first nation, that's us, the first nation to separate Christianity from government produced perhaps the most religious nation on earth. Yeah. So when, yeah. You, when you start mixing the government up with your religion, you're, you're going to turn everybody off. They don't want to have anything to do with your religion. They won't even, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's crazy. You're, you're not helping yourself by going for the power. Well, government is about power. I mean, that's how it functions. Well, yeah, yeah, it, initially, it functions from the power of the people. But between elections, somebody else has to have the power to make things happen. So power is how government does it. So if you're, you think you're going to get in there and, and, you know, power is the game you want to play. And clearly, I mean, the way some of the evangelical people, I'm thinking of names escape me, but uh, uh, but a number of, of uh, very conservative people. What? Pence. Well, Pence is a good one, good example. Um, they, you know, they're perfectly willing to use power. Now, uh, Pence is also Democrat small d. Uh, I mean, he's also willing to he doesn't want to make democracy fall apart. But Jesus wasn't about power. So where do these people? Where where do people get this lust for power as, as they're supposedly following Jesus? I don't understand it. 
Constantine was the emperor of Rome. He was not a Christian. He was the presider over the Council of Nicaea, uh, where the bishops, about 10% of the bishops in the country, in the, in the world at that time, attended. 90% did not. Those 10% could not agree on a number of issues. Constantine imposed that decision, and the reward was Christianity became the religion of the realm. That's where it started, and it's continued all the way through. Uh, the Jesuits almost convinced the, uh, the, uh, the Chinese emperor to convert to Christianity. They didn't try and convert all the Chinese. They learned you do the top and it falls down, and they almost did. All he asked was that the church that gave a blessing to Plato and the Platonics in the Christian movement would also look at, uh, uh, um, what's his name, Confucius, and acknowledge Confucius had some good ideas, and that's all the Jesuits had to do, and so they took it to the Pope, and the Pope said no. They blew it. That's where the church has always been headed towards well, the top. The Jesuits have always been. Well, Not necessarily the whole. No, the, the, the Pope said no. I, I, go ahead. Well, I'll say, back to your point, you've got a very good point. I stand corrected. Um, but if somebody, say, runs for Congress, who happens to be a Baptist, say, is he really, he or she really in there to, ad, to advance the cause of the Baptist church or to advance what he or she thinks is the right thing to do? And I, I would say the latter. Of course, everybody's different. Excuse me, somebody, I can't turn that off. Um, I would say the latter. And so, um, but, but I, I see those people who have, feel like they have, who want to make things better for everybody. They're going to run for Congress. They're going to do what they think is right. But they're not advancing the cause of a church or even the cause of, I don't think, religion in the sense that we want you know, we want a cross in every building in the, in the nation or anything like that. So that's all I have to say on that. Well, I think some of them do want a cross on every building. Um, but this quote from James Dodson, that there's nothing short of a great civil war of values rages today throughout North America. Two sides with vastly differing and incompatible worldviews are locked in a bitter conflict that permeates every level of society. I think that's true. Uh, and how do we bridge that gap? Can we bridge that gap? And how did we get here? We can go back to our founding, you know, that, that separation, that separation. Oh. Church and state. Amen, sister. Um, Good luck. <laughs> culture wars have been a really great tool for winding up the electorate. You know, I mean, I think that's, that's the big deal about it right now. It was discovered, uh, Newt Gingrich, I think, really kind of started, he recognized this is a way for us to gain power, get onto these issues. And we're sort of trapped in that process at the moment. And I don't know how you get out of it other than to just listen to each other real carefully and 
but I don't think that's in. Would you repeat that, Adam? I didn't quite hear you. I would actually argue that Nixon's silent majority campaign in 1968 was probably the first time that a politician took this idea that something cultural that was brewing underneath what was being publicly said needed to come to the ballot box and be voted upon, and he won in a landslide. Um, that's the first time anybody tried to use a cultural issue at the ballot box um, in our modern era. Stephen. I was just going to say, it seems like the more we celebrate our uniqueness instead of our common commonality, it just keeps driving people apart. And that's what, it, what today seems to be, I'm special and it's all about me as opposed to the common good. So how do we bring everybody together if we're all about individuality? All right, all right, we have 15 minutes left um, and I think Ralph and I both wanted to talk a little bit about um, what, what do you take, what is the takeaway? Do you have any takeaways from this course? Like the book, not like the book? The book is certainly thought-provoking and I wish I had gotten to the last chapter so I'd have a better idea of what the takeaway is. He's, he's so interesting because he is, a, like you said, he is a religious conservative mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. takes a clear view of kind of everything. He, does. he doesn't say, well, he, he looks at everything. It's, he, he more than often than not says, well, this is how th these people live by ungrace in his term, mm -hmm. which is not good. Um, so he's a very interesting author because of that. He's not, he's almost, he, 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 he starts off from the right, but he almost is down the, uh, down the center because he gives kind of both sides a view and calls out the good and the bad on both sides, which is, that's why I love, I mean, that's one reason why I love him so much, so. Well, I think he does what Christians should do. Yeah, yeah. Is be able to critique themselves well, that's the business of you looking at your own shadow. But I think we should be able to critique ourselves. I mean, we're in a culture that if somebody uh, identifies something about them, or uh, let's say about somebody else that's bad, then they're all bad. You know, it's just, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that, for instance, one of my problems is Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby did some really bad stuff. I mean, he really did. And I'm not inclined to let him off the hook for the really bad stuff, but he did some really great stuff too, and some funny stuff and some pretty cool stuff. And we now can have nothing to do with Bill Cosby because of the bad stuff he did. So we throw away a lot of treasure in our culture because we can't find a way to all of us accept and acknowledge our own bad stuff without just coming to the conclusion that we're just totally unredeemable. Um, yeah. Yeah. And 
They're just, as the scripture says, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that hasn't changed, and it isn't going to change. <laughs> and no, no. Uh, so how do we come to terms with, with that? You know, I'd like to think every day I get better and better in every way, but there are some things that just don't seem to be getting better. Janet, you want to weigh in on that? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I just think that it's really important for us to come to that. And I, I think the only place we can start is with ourselves. Absolutely. And start with our group, start with our church. And I, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which we do that pretty well. But it's still, nevertheless, hard for us because the culture just won't permit it. That's part of the, that black and white thinking. Oscar Schindler comes to mind, much like Bill Cosby does to you. He was a womanizer and a drunk. And yet, he saved how many children mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, at, at, at risk to his own life mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in World War II. And I always, I think of him often when I have a tendency to be black and white mm -hmm. uh, because there's good and bad in all of us and we just have to acknowledge that. My, my for me the bottom, I sort of wrote out what I saw as the biggest points there but I'm not going to go through that because I think that <clears throat> the biggest thing for us, I mean it certainly begins with us, right? And I think, like, the, f the, th the first step, really, is f forgiving each other. You know, not letting grudge, not saying you're different than me, so I'm not going to be your friend, or I'm not going to like you. You know, I, ha I've, I have learned the hard way, you have to accept people the way they are. And I've also learned the easy way, that be by being their friend and finding common ground with them, you build relationships, and, and it's a heck of a lot of fun. And you know, they may still not agree with me ever, and that's okay, because life's good because they're friends, you know? And yeah. I would disagree with one point there, when right. you say the first sure. step is to forgive other people. I think the first step is to forgive yourself, because until you've done that, you can't be forgiving anybody else. It's just sort of impossible. Last page of this, the last page of this book moved me to tears. Mm -hmm. And I think in so many ways mm -hmm. it sums up the mm -hmm. message of his book. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's beautiful. Um, the so, Wembley Stadium. Uh, it's about... Uh, amazing Grace? Yeah, it's about Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. Page 282. Yeah, and it, Jesse Norman tells Bill Moyers about Newton, who wrote the book, and, and it really probably starts on the previous page, <laughs> but at the end of it, you know, literally, it, I was in tears. Now, enough of the rest of this book did that to me, and I've, I've spent years disliking the hymn Amazing Grace. Just hated it. Huh. That's almost I've un-American. Got, I've gotten over that, but, uh, you know, I used to hate it. Just especially the final verse I just despised it you know 10,000 years there's a there's a hymn that I grew up with that there's a verse on it says 10,000 years in glory 10,000 years with our Lord and I would end it 10,000 years 
twiddling my thumbs and being eternally bored. Because <laughs> the pictures that I've gotten about heaven, I just don't want to go there. <laughs> and some of the hymns really did that. Well, Amazing Grace sort of fit in that for me until I guess I had some kind of a conversion experience. Maybe it had to do with the bagpipes. I think it helped. I think the bagpipes helped me. <laughs> The, the last paragraph on the next to the last page, which starts that whole section, to me that didn't move me to tears, but it was the most poignant for me, probably paragraph in the whole sentence about how one man found God, went from a slave trader to a whatever, just exactly as, as far away from that as you can get. And gosh, that's a beautiful thing. Pardon? Isn't, isn't the man who wrote Amazing Grace, isn't he the one who was pretty much responsible for Parliament's passing the... No. So he joined William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I was thinking about this in terms of... Uh, I, I just read it 41 years ago. And uh, in that 41 years, uh, a number of gay couples have come to me and asked to, to have a blessing of their relationship. And I couldn't do it, and I didn't do it, until the church said it was okay. Now that's because I'm not, you know, I, I'll do what the church ultimately. Right, I, I'm under that authority, that's part of my ordination. Ordination means coming up. And that, so the orders were but one of the delights here was the Pride Parade here recently. It was rainy and it was, you know. But I was thinking, you know, here are, well, St. Andrews was there, you know, all kinds of different Episcopal congregations were there. Yeah, at St. Paul's we had a Eucharist, it was a great and I think, and I thought, well, we have finally chosen our side in the culture war. And that side was exactly what you were saying. It's about love. It's about compassion. It's about, it's not about, you know, the other love you talking about. We've been talking a lot about evangelicals, and nobody here is even any of us anyway. Well, okay, I don't know. About I don't know <laughs> <laughs> Good, all right. But I, I think it's it's easy to sort of pick on other people's theology. But I'm saying, you know, Episcopal theology, we have learned our way through the ordination of women and uh, the ordination of gay people and even, even gay bishops. And, you know, we're perfectly willing to go out and walk in a pride parade. We have come along way in the 41 years I've been a priest. So, you know, I felt good about that. We have five minutes left. Any, any last thoughts anyone wants to make? One more. <laughs> I thought the discussion last week was really a good one. It was, uh, you know, what needs to happen in this country is a bunch of, of discussions mostly about um, white people 
about racism because you know our denial has been the problem it just has been and so we were talking around it pretty well last week I thought it was pretty amazing actually it was a good discussion Ralph any closing thoughts no I none none from this side of the table I just, I just want to thank you guys for your leadership and facilitating these really, I think, spirited and substantial conversations. Um, I'm just grateful to have been part of it with you all. Thanks thank for you leading. for supporting thanks, us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being thank here. Thank you very much for supporting and, us. And I do love our summer, summer book reads. Who knows what will come up next year? I, I do have one final request. Quick, quickly, Don. I do uh, one final request. Can we all sing Amazing Grace for Father John? <laughs> uh. Maybe yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna nix that and let Sarah let Sarah finish her thing, but unless Sarah really wants to do it. I, w I was watching TV with my husband two weeks ago or a week ago. And it was a news program. Buck O'Neill, favorite son of oh, yeah. Kansas City, came on. And it was obviously um, archival footage of him receiving one of his many awards. And he was giving a speech. And I'm sort of putzing on my computer and watching the TV at the same time. And he starts talking. And I'm going, that's the book. He's saying what the book says. So I want to tell you what he said. I can't hate a human being because my God never made anything ugly. Martin. I'm assuming he's talking about Martin Luther King. He didn't expand. Martin says, agape is a redemptive goodwill toward all men. Agape is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. And when you love on this level, you love all men. Not because you like them. Not because their ways appeal to you. But you love them because God loves them. And I love Jehovah my God with all my heart and all my soul. And I love every one of you. So that's this book. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Um, that's so awesome. That was our closing prayer. That it could, be, it could have been, but <laughs> I also be, have a closing be, yeah, prayer. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is also from the Book of Common Prayer, and I just I, I love their nighttime prayers. I just love them. So let us pray. Be present, O merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming and supporting yeah. us yeah, and thank contributing you very much. to these. Thank we really you. very much appreciate it. So, and have a safe night. And my 50th reunion is tomorrow, so, yes. Mm -hmm. I gotta lose 25 pounds by tomorrow. <laughs> And if you have any suggestions for next year, next summer's bookery, let us know. <laughs>